Well, this week we decided to have electricity. Uh, I don't know, if you, if you weren't here with us last week, you missed out on kind of a unique and interesting experience. Last Sunday morning, right as we got to the second song, as our worship leaders were leading music for us, the power went out. And I thought about being a wise guy and saying to the church, listen, you know, it's, it's because offerings were low and we didn't have uh, uh, money for the electricity, but then I didn't do that. I was like, no, that's, uh, that's sort of funny to me, but um, anyway. Uh, but uh, yeah, so the power went out last week and we kind of, for a moment, had that hesitation. How do you function without electricity, right? Don't, don't you always have that, like, you kind of pause, like, wait a second. I use electricity for many things. Now, the coffee was already brewed. It was already in the, you know, the urn out there, so it was hot. It was fine. And uh, we weren't in any danger from you know, freezing cold weather, so we just rode it out and hoped that it was going to come back on, but it never did. <laughs> but no, that was a lot of fun. I, I, I uh, enjoyed that morning. I enjoyed our opportunity to worship together. And for the past uh, few months, we've been looking through the book of Jeremiah. We're in, we're in our second to last week of looking at this book, and uh, I've enjoyed preaching through this book for a variety of reasons. I think it's a convicting book. Uh, I think that it reveals a lot about the heart of God. Uh, I also know that it's a book that, admittedly in my own life and probably in your life, um, it, we, we find it somewhat easy to overlook in the sense that it falls into that section of the Bible uh, at the end of the Old Testament where you have the major prophets and the minor prophets. And if I had to guess, and I could be wrong about this, but if I had to guess which segment of the Bible is the least read and which segment of the Bible is the least understood, my guess would be that segment. So at the end of last year, when I was thinking through some of the things that um, I should be preaching about in this coming year, at the time I was thinking about it, I was just individually reading through the book of Jeremiah, and it dawned on me, I've never done a series, in 20 years of being a pastor, I've never preached a series through the book of Jeremiah. And I thought, wow, that's, gonna, that's kind of a challenging book to preach through. But I started thinking about it, I thought, no, for the, for the first few months of 2018, we're going to look at the book of Jeremiah. So this week and next week are our last weeks looking at the book. We haven't looked at every chapter, we've looked at major portions and, and, and certain highlights. And the portion of scripture from Jeremiah that we're looking at today talks about skepticism. And the way I phrased it here for us is this idea, you might be a skeptic if, and we're going to complete the sentence by looking at a few different things that are brought out by this portion of Scripture. Now, I will say this, naturally speaking, there are certain areas that we, I think we all probably tend to be skeptical on. I know, um, oh, let's see, this was right around 2001, right around New Year's time, I was visiting my wife's family in, uh, they lived near Buffalo, New York, about an hour south of Buffalo, and we happened to be in Buffalo at a hockey game, and during the hockey game, they notified us that they were closing most of the major roads around the arena because the snow was getting so bad, and the snow kept coming for three days, and it didn't stop, and uh, by the time that storm was finished, and I promise you this is not an exaggeration, we had seven feet of snow. Seven feet. Now, they're good about keeping up with it. You know, they didn't just wait for it all to fall before they started working on it. All along the way during those three days, they were trying their best to keep up with it and clear it out. But I mentioned to my friend a few years ago how I actually experienced one time in my life seven feet of snow. And this is another pastor I said this to. And he, he looked at me and he's like, really? And I was like, what, is this like what we do? Do we just lie to each other? I said, I'm not lying. Like, this really happened. He's like, but seven feet. He's like, okay, I'm sure it was a good snowfall, but seven feet. I was like, yes, seven feet. By the way, this is a pastor that mentored me, right? So he's, and I was like, you're, you're, you're my mentor. Like, you don't even believe your own mentee, right? Or mento, what would I be in that context? And I said to him, um, I said, all right, you know what? Don't go anywhere. I went online. I found the news story, printed it up, and I handed it to him. And I was like, read it. And he looked at it. He's like, huh, seven feet. Who would have thought? I was like, well, you should have thought because I just told you it was seven feet of snow, but he wouldn't believe me. But we all tend to be skeptical to one degree or another. And the portion of scripture that we're looking at today, it illustrates the folly of skepticism when that skepticism is enacted toward God. 
And that's what we see displayed in this portion of Scripture. So we might be skeptics if some of these things that are illustrated here are true of us. So if you would, take your Bibles and open up to Jeremiah 43. We're going to be looking at verse 1 down to verse 13. And this is what it tells us here in this passage. When Jeremiah finished speaking to all the people all these words of the Lord their God, with which the Lord their God had sent him to them, Azariah the son of Hoshiah and Johanan the son of Kareah, and all the insolent men said to Jeremiah, You are telling a lie. The Lord our God did not send you to say, Do not go to Egypt to live there. But Baruch, the son of Neriah, has set you against us to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans, that they may kill us or take us into exile in Babylon. So Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces, and all the people did not obey the voice of the Lord to remain in the land of Judah. But Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces, took all the remnant of Judah who had returned to live in the land of Judah from all the nations to which they had been driven, the men, the women, the children, the princesses, and every person whom Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had left with Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, also Jeremiah, the prophet, and Baruch, the son of Neriah. And they came into the land of Egypt, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord. And they arrived at Tapanes. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in Tapanes. Take in your hands large stones and hide them in the mortar in the pavement that is at the entrance to Pharaoh's palace in Tapanes, in the sight of the men of Judah, and say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will send and take Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will set his throne above these stones that I have hidden, and he will spread his royal canopy over them. He shall come and strike the land of Egypt, giving over to the pestilence those who are doomed to the pestilence, to captivity those who are doomed to captivity, and to the sword those who are doomed to the sword. I shall kindle a fire in the temples of the gods of Egypt, and he shall burn them and carry them away captive, and he shall clean the land of Egypt as a shepherd cleans his cloak of vermin, and he shall go away from there in peace. He shall break the obelisks of Heliopolis, which is in the land of Egypt, and the temples of the gods of Egypt he shall burn with fire. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and thank you for the things that you reveal to us from it as we look at it together. And Lord, we pray that you prepare our minds and prepare our hearts to receive it. We pray that by your grace we would grow in our walk with you today. We pray, Lord, that you would develop a deeper level of intimacy in our relationship with you, that we would understand more about your heart and your character, and that it would be our desire not just to know things about you, but to know you personally and to walk with you in every context of life that you place us in. And Lord, you give us a great example of the necessity of that when we look at a passage like this today. So Lord, we pray that you'd speak to us from it. We pray that you'd help us to understand it. And we pray that we would grow in our walk with you. We commit our time to you today and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Are there people in your day-to-day -day life that you don't really trust? You know, people that you have to interact with regularly that you kind of wonder whether or not you can believe what they're saying? I have somebody uh, in my life, an acquaintance, he's not necessarily a close friend, but I have to interact with him several times during the course of a year, and the longer I have known him, uh, the less I feel like I can believe what he says. And that's probably kind of a shame to have to admit, but it's true, because a lot of times I'll think that he's speaking plainly with me, and then I'll discover that what he said, well, the opposite is actually true. And, you know, I find it hard to function with somebody like that. In fact, in many respects, I consider it nearly impossible to do any meaningful work or have any level of relationship with somebody that you can't really trust. Now, generally speaking, uh, do you tend to believe others when they tell you something? Or when somebody tells you something, do you tend to take what they say under consideration until you have a little bit of an opportunity to do a little research yourself. 
You know, I think some of those might be just different aspects of, of our personalities and our preferences. But how about this? What about the Lord? Meaning, when the Lord speaks, are you primarily skeptical of what he's saying? Or do you trust what he says? And to what degree do you value the teaching that he's made known in his word? And I bring that up just to maybe set up our minds to be thinking about what we're looking at in this passage. Because in this portion of scripture that we're looking at today, we're actually going to be shown several signs of unhealthy skepticism and how the Lord uses um, or really just kind of chooses in this context to address unhealthy forms of skepticism when they're directed toward him. And one of the things that this portion of scripture brings out is this idea of treating truth like a lie. So you might actually be a skeptic toward God if truth is treated like a lie. Look again at the first three verses there. It says this, when Jeremiah finished speaking to all the people, all these words of the Lord their God, so emphasis there, right, on the fact that the words that he's speaking to them are not just his own idea. These are words that the Lord had given him to speak. So it says, when Jeremiah finished speaking to all the people, all these words of the Lord their God, with which the Lord their God had sent him to them, it tells us Azariah, the son of Hoshiah, and Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the insolent men said to Jeremiah, you are telling a lie. The Lord our God did not send you to say, do not go to Egypt to live there, but Baruch, the son of Neriah, has set you against us to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans, that they may kill us or take us into exile in Babylon. Let's pause there for just a second. Now, again, if you're not familiar with this passage, let me just mention a couple things to set it up. Um, we've been seeing this tra uh, just transpire over the course of our weeks of looking at this book. But during the era in which uh, this particular passage was written and taking place, the nation of Babylon was in the process of invading the southern kingdom of Israel, which was called Judah. And what they were doing is they were invading that land. They were taking the people captive. And the people in the midst of this experience were trying to figure out, what do we do? We have an invading army coming in and taking us captive. How do we respond to this? What do we do? And so the Lord revealed through Jeremiah that the people were to actually cooperate with this captivity, which is, it feels counterintuitive. If somebody was trying to invade our country and take us captive, our natural inclination would be either to fight or flee. It wouldn't be to cooperate with it. But the Lord said, no, I want the people of Judah to cooperate with this captivity. And in the midst of all of this, a remnant of people were left in Judah. So a group of them were not taken into captivity. Some of them were left in Judah, and they were obviously scared. Their entire culture had just been dismantled all around them, and all the things that they were familiar with were now changing, and many of the people that they knew were now gone, having been taken forcibly as captives. And so they wondered what they were supposed to do. You have this remnant of people still living in Judah, wondering, what are we supposed to do? Should they stay where they were? Or maybe they should try to flee to Egypt. Egypt wasn't too far away. And so some of them thought, maybe, you know, if we flee to Egypt, hopefully the king of Babylon won't find us there. And uh, hopefully he won't pursue us there. And so Jeremiah, the prophet, who up to this point, he spent decades being hated by the people and ignored in their moment of need. What do they do? Well, the previous chapter tells us that they come to Jeremiah and they say, Jeremiah, will you pray to the Lord and will you ask him what we're supposed to do? You just find out, what are we supposed to do? They ask Jeremiah to seek direction from the Lord in this matter. And so Jeremiah does that. And in fact, the scripture tells us in the previous chapter that Jeremiah prayed on behalf of this group of people for 10 days. And then the Lord gave him an answer. Now, I'll, I'll say this, and this, isn't, this is something that just occurred to me, even as I'm mentioning this to you, but how often do we pray to the Lord and we expect the answer in four seconds, right? A lot of times my prayers... Um, you know, sometimes I give God a good minute, you know, and here it tells us Jeremiah, he prayed to the Lord for 10 days and then the Lord gave him the answer. And so Jeremiah then passed the answer on to the people. And the Lord's instruction was for them to remain in Judah and not flee to Egypt. Don't go to Egypt, he said, just stay in Judah. Even though you're scared, even though you're fearful, just stay in Judah because the Lord promised to protect them 
Uh, he even indicated that he would cause the king of Babylon to be favorably disposed toward them and to show them mercy. He said, just stay put, just remain. But how did this remnant of people respond? What was their decision, or how did they respond to this information as Jeremiah now reveals the answer to their prayer? Well, even though they had initially, if you look at the previous chapter, they had initially promised that they would follow whatever counsel the Lord revealed through Jeremiah, they did the exact opposite once they actually got the message. They didn't like what Jeremiah said because it conflicted with what they already wanted to do. They wanted to go to Egypt, and when Jeremiah was telling them, don't go to Egypt, they look at Jeremiah and say, you know what, we were going to listen to you, but if you're going to lie to us, we're not listening at all. They start calling him a liar, right? They're like, you're telling us lies. These are lies. You just want us to get hurt. And so they rejected the message that the Lord had given Jeremiah. They rejected the direct answer to their prayer, or to his prayer, we would say, on this, in this particular context. But is this anything new among humanity? That's not anything new, is it? I mean, is this anything that should really surprise us? Isn't this something that we've seen plenty of times in our own lives, if we're honest? You don't have to answer out loud, just answer in your head, right? Don't we see this in our own lives? If we're really honest, we see this in our own lives, right? We see this in the lives of those around us as well. You know, when the Lord makes his truth known to us, particularly when we're reading through the, the scriptures, when we're reading through his word, what is our natural response to that truth? I think naturally speaking, we're inclined to treat it uh, like it's true when it meshes with what we wanted God to say. And I think naturally speaking, we're inclined to treat it like it's a lie if it's the opposite of what we were hoping to hear. If it conflicts with what we wanted to hear, we're like, you know what, Lord, I can't believe you would lie to me. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to listen to this. It's not what I wanted to hear. I think I know better than you. I recognize that you could see eternity past and eternity future. I recognize you created me and created creation. I recognize that, that you know every last detail about my life from the moment I was born to the moment when I, I take my last breath on this earth. However, in this moment, I think I know more than you. So, therefore, I'm just going to treat what you said like it's a lie, and I'm just going to follow my own wisdom. I had an experience a few decades ago. This is actually while I was in college. I was having a conversation with an extended family member. And he and I were talking about, among all things, we were talking about relationships. Um, and uh, in the midst of that, he admitted to me that he, was, that he had elected uh, to be uh, relationally intimate with his girlfriend in a way that you're supposed to wait until you're married. And, uh, and I said to him, I said, really? I said, why have you made that decision? I, I said, why are, you, why are you, you going in that direction? And he said, listen, I realize you're supposed to wait till you're married. However, um, we're going to get married anyway, so why not? And uh, he's like, I don't, I don't really feel like waiting. And I, I, I said, well, I, I really don't think that that's, a, that's wise counsel. I don't really think that that's something that you ought to do. And he's like, I think it'll be fine. Well, not surprisingly, it didn't end up fine. And they did not get married. And there were a, a whole string of things that came from that, that I know that if he could go back in time and make that decision over again, he'd go back in time and make that decision over again. But it was one of those moments where he treated the truth of God like it was a lie, because it conflicted with what he preferred. And again, lest I point the finger at others, when I look at my own life, there are many, many, many examples in my own life where I've also treated God's revealed truth like it was a lie in the sense that I went and did my own thing in the face of what God had clearly revealed. And I think that that's one of our greatest struggles as people. I think that that's one of our greatest struggles as believers in Jesus Christ. I think every day that you and I live is a day that we wrestle with whether we're going to actually treat the truth of God like it's true and obey it, or treat the truth of God like it's a lie and disregard it. I think this is a debate we have every single day, every moment of the day, and some days go much better than others. But thankfully, our Lord is patient with us. Thankfully, our Lord is merciful toward us. Do you ever just thank God for his mercy toward you specifically? Recognizing just how much we don't deserve the mercy of God. Sometimes I just, I, I'm struck by the fact that he shows me mercy. 
that he shows any of us mercy. Like, we don't deserve mercy. He's like, no, you don't deserve it. That's the point. And I'm showing it to you anyway. And one of the things that I love about our Lord is the fact that he's kind toward us. We don't deserve his kindness, but he's kind toward us with the goal that something will happen in our lives. Scripture tells us that the Lord's kind toward us because he knows that his kindness invites us to repent. Look at what it tells us in Romans chapter 2, verses four, or verse 4. It says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It's a portion of Scripture that reminds us that the kindness of God is shown to us with the goal that it invites us to repent, to basically observe our lives and notice that we're walking in a direction that's not the direction that the Lord's called us to go in, and to stop, and to do an about-face, and instead of walking away from the Lord, to repent and walk toward Him. And His kindness invites us to do that. And I believe that as our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ develops, as our faith in Christ grows, He causes us to mature. He causes our faith to develop. And I think that we begin responding to what he's revealed more seriously because we begin to see the truth that the Lord's revealed as a reflection of his heart. Not just a whole bunch of mandates that he's put down on paper so that we have a checklist, but we start to see these things as a reflection of his heart. And instead of treating what the Lord's revealed as a lie, we begin to accept it as the truth and we stop acting toward the Lord with unhealthy skepticism. That's a mark of spiritual maturity that he's seeking to foster within us. Now, the book of Jeremiah continues to display evidence of skepticism toward God. And you might be a skeptic, in addition to what we just looked at, if the voice of God is ignored. If the Lord can speak in the various ways that he speaks, and we ignore his voice, we might be unhealthy skeptics toward God. Look again at verse 4 and the verses following it. It says this, so Johanan, the son of Korea, and by the way, I always love when we come to passages of Scripture like this uh, that have a bunch of names. I will confess to you that during the week I review that multiple times. I'm like, yeah, I really don't want to goof up all these names on Sunday morning, but sometimes I'll just have like a roadblock in my mind. I'll come to a name and be like, I don't remember how to say that one. But anyway, we got a lot of names here. And I've always thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting to have your name in the Bible? But then you look at what their name is in the Bible for, doesn't look like it was for all that good. And it says, So Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces and all the people did not obey the voice of the Lord to remain in the land of Judah. But Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces took all the remnant of Judah who had returned to live in the land of Judah from all the nations to which they had been driven, the men, the women, the children, the princesses, and every person whom Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had left with Gedaliah, the son of Ahakam, son of Shaphan, also Jeremiah the prophet, and Baruch the son of Neriah. And they came into the land of Egypt, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord, and they arrived at Tapanes. Now let's pause there for a second. So at the start of that, uh, that section and at the, the end of that section, it tells us that they did not listen to the voice of the Lord. The voice of God was ignored. Um, right now, well, let's see, earlier this week, I didn't ask Rich if I could share this. Oh, Rich, could I share something that involves you? All right, good. Um, <laughs> that's a lot of faith right there. So, um, Octavia, it relates to you too, so I hope it's doubly okay. We'll see. Um, but uh, on Wednesday of this past week, uh, Rich, who is an elder here at our church, we had the opportunity to drive up to Hazleton, Pennsylvania, so it's two hours north, and we were there to help a sister church that was seeking some counsel and seeking some direction, seeking some advice. They're in the process of rebuilding after that church almost closed a few years ago. So we were invited to come up. We uh, were talking with them, working with them, and meeting with them. And since it's a two-hour drive up and a two-hour drive back, you just have a lot of time to talk. So we were talking about a variety of things. And right now, one of the things we were talking about, because in our household, uh, we're, we're both experiencing the same thing, and that's um, the, the process of teaching your children to drive. Right? I mean, he's, he's experiencing that. I'm experiencing that. And I, I mentioned something to him that, that he, uh, uh, he and I were on the same page with, that one of the things I felt the need to say when I began teaching my children to drive 
was, please uh, don't react emotionally if I yell. Because I don't, I'm not mad at you. You know, I remember saying that, like, you know, for, so for the past, you know, couple of years, this has been the process of my life, and for the next few, this will be the process of my life. But I, I said, and I try and lay that as a foundation, it's like, please don't get upset if I yell. Because I'm not mad at you while we're doing this, all right? I'm not trying to yell, I'm not mad. But there are moments along the way here where I'm going to need to say something very quickly, and my heart's going to need to be absolutely certain that I got your attention and maybe the attention of the car next to us, right? I'm going to want to say this loud. I'm going to want to say it very clear, and I I promise you I'm not mad. So I just kind of laid that out because I know that in the midst of driving, the second I snapped or yelled or reacted, because I'm watching out looking for things that someone, you know, just learning to drive, they're learning how to move the vehicle. They're not watching the horizon. They're not necessarily able to notice those things until they get a little bit more practiced. And so I thought, all right, I need to be those eyes, but I also need to be that mouth. And there have been moments that have been on the louder side, and and I I feel a little bit better having laid that foundation. And Rich confessed to me, he's like, oh yeah, absolutely. I do that too. You know, this is the type of stuff that you just do, right? And some of you that have experienced that, um, you know, whether whether you were being taught or whether you were teaching, probably have similar stories related to that. But it's the idea of warning about danger and being maybe even sometimes loud with the goal of getting someone's attention. And I bring that up because in multiple ways throughout the scriptures, God illustrates the fact that he relates to us like a loving father. He's not some distant overlord, right? He relates to us as a loving father. The only thing in his creation that was made in his image is you. Trees can't claim that. Puppies, as cute as they are, can't claim that, right? Planets can't claim that. You get to claim that in the sense that you were made in the image of God. And he relates to you and to me and to all humanity like a father, like a loving father. And because he loves us, and because he knows that we can't see the kind of things that he can see, he makes a point frequently to warn us, sometimes loudly, about what's coming. Now, in the context of this passage, the Lord gave sufficient caution to the people and to the leaders of Judah, and he cautioned them related to what they could expect if they happened to elevate their own ideas and their own preferences above his wisdom. But what do we see? They didn't listen to his voice. They ignored his voice. They went and did their own thing anyway. God told them, don't go to Egypt. Just stay here in Judah remnant, right? Just stay. Don't go to Egypt. But what do they do? They go to Egypt because somehow they're smarter than God. Well, I can't be too critical of them because I've made that mistake too, and you have as well. We all have, right? So here it tells us Johanan and the commanders of the forces, they led the people to Egypt. And it seems, it seems to imply that they kidnapped Jeremiah and Baruch. I don't understand why they even wanted them with them since they seem to hate everything Jeremiah said. But it seems to indicate that they forcibly took Jeremiah and Baruch to come along with them as well. And by the way, when it says Baruch here, I think he deserves to be highlighted because Baruch was Jeremiah's friend. He was Jeremiah's scribe. And over the course of Jeremiah's 42 years of ministry, there's really only, I think, two people listed in the book of Jeremiah that actually seemed to listen to what he said. And Baruch was one of them. So let's give Baruch a little bit of credit. He must have been a bright spot in Jeremiah's life because for 42 years, like Baruch and maybe one other guy uh, were given examples of the fact that they actually listened to what Jeremiah had to say. But Baruch and Jeremiah were, it seems, forcibly taken along with these people and brought into Egypt. Now I'll say this, it's a dangerous thing to ignore the voice of God. That's a dangerous thing. That puts your life in a very dangerous spot. You ignore the voice of God. If that's the pattern of your life, You've now set yourself up for guaranteed failure. It's a dangerous thing, and we've all done it. We've all played the part of the skeptic in regard to God. We've all tried to drown out the voice of God so that his voice falls into the background and gets replaced with our own voice or maybe the voices of our friends or the voices of our heroes, people that we prefer to listen to. We drown God's voice out. We replace his voice with the voices we wanted to listen to, and we treat him like he's an afterthought. We ignore what he's actually saying. But God wants us to listen 
to his voice. He wants us to stop hardening our hearts against him. I like what it tells us in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. It says this, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And that's referencing early Israel. And what did they do against the Lord? They hardened their hearts against the Lord. They didn't listen to his voice. So how does God speak to us? You know, if we're supposed to be listening to the voice of God, are we just expecting him to audibly communicate? He's only He's rarely done that. There's only a few examples of the Lord ever communicating that way with people. In fact, that does not seem to be his, his default way of communicating with humanity during the course of human history. So how does God often speak to us? Well, let me give you a few things that the Word of God reveals. First off, the Lord speaks to us through the Bible, and He revealed the words of Scripture to biblical authors and told them, we'll write these things down. They were directed to write these things down. In fact, in 1 Peter, or excuse me, 2 Peter 1.21, it says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when we're reading the Scriptures, when we're looking at the Bible as the Lord's revealed His will to us there, we recognize that these aren't ideas that some guy just came up with or a group of guys came up with, but the Scripture tells us that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gave them the words to say. He carried them along. So the Lord speaks to us through the Scriptures. That's, in fact, probably the primary way we could list that the Lord speaks to us. If you want to hear the voice of God, if you want to understand God's will for your life, be in the Scriptures. Be intentional about being in the Scriptures because you'll learn those things. The Lord also has spoken to us through various prophets. And I'll say this, the words of a biblical prophet will never contradict with the revealed Scriptures. Someone ever claims to be a prophet, and yet they preach or teach something that contradicts with what the Scripture says, you can be certain they are not a prophet. Scripture also tells us that the Lord specifically has spoken to us through His Son. Look at what it says in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says, Long ago at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. So that's another way that the Lord speaks to us, specifically through His Son, Jesus Christ. He also speaks to us through various people that He places in our life. Do you ever have somebody that loves you, uh, particularly enough to tell you the truth, tell you something you didn't want to hear, but there was part of your conscience that knew that the Lord was speaking through that person to you. I've had that happen multiple times in the course of my life, and I'm certain that you have as well. And that's one of the ways that the Lord speaks to us, oftentimes through other people that He places in our lives. I think sometimes the Lord speaks to us through circumstances that He orchestrates on our behalf, that He wants us to learn something from. You know, there are times in your life that you could probably identify circumstances that the Lord allowed you to have that taught you something about Him or His will or His desire for your day-to-day -day life. And Scripture also tells us that the Lord speaks to our conscience through His Holy Spirit. A lot of times there'll be, um, and I'm certain that you've had moments like this where you, you feel like you can discern truth from error, and you can also tell that the Lord's indicating in your conscience something specific, and you're thinking, all right, I don't have peace about that. Something seems off about that. And I believe in many of those moments, that's the Lord speaking to us through His Holy Spirit, giving us His wisdom, giving us His counsel, helping us to understand a glimpse of what He can see that, naturally speaking, we struggle to see. But the truth is, as children of God, we're presented with the same options that our children are presented with. Specifically, just as our children, so my wife and I are blessed with four children, uh, I know some of you have more children than that, and some of you, maybe you'll even someday have more children than that, Right? Um, but as we look at our kids and as we think about our kids, and as I think about when I was a child growing up, I recognized that I could 
choose or I could choose to listen to or I could choose to reject the counsel that was given to me from my parents. I could accept it as wise and put it into practice or I could say, you know what? I'm ignoring your voice. I know better than you and I'm just going to do what I want to do anyway. And I can list, and I'm certain that my parents can. I'm glad they're not with us today because they would love to meet you in the foyer and share many examples that they still remember and don't fail to bring up of where I chose to do my own thing because, of course, I knew better. And then I discovered, oh, apparently living a long time helps you learn stuff? Huh. Turns out they knew something. My dad loves any time I come to him and tell him, that now I'm actually living out the experience that he had with me. He loves it. His favorite, favorite thing is anytime I realize he was right. He just loves being told he was right. <laughs> he loves it. And when you look at this portion of Scripture, what's it telling us? It's telling us we can respond when God tries to get our attention. Or we could pretend like we didn't hear him. Just pretend like I didn't, you know what, Lord, I, you're probably speaking, I don't know. I'm not listening, right? We can, we can make the extra effort to read what he's actually revealed in the scriptures through the prophets, or we could waste more time watching TV and surfing the internet and filling our time with a whole bunch of other things and then wondering, why don't I feel like I have clarity on the will of God? It's like, well, he gave you access to it and you don't use it. We can say yes to him, or we can say no to him, but just imagine all the needless sorrow we experience if our default response to the voice of God is a persistent and hard-hearted no. Just think about like all the, the, the needless toil and the needless pain and the needless sorrow that we invite into our lives when we just basically look at God and say, Lord, I'm choosing right now to be willfully ignorant and I'll accept the consequences, whatever they may be. And again... I'm not pointing the finger at anybody but me, as I mentioned that, because that's the struggle that I have, that's the struggle that you have. So often, it is way easier for me to just go my own way and just try and rely on my own thoughts or my own wisdom and place the wisdom of God into some sort of like a second-tier rung in my life. And then I watch how that pans out, and it never works out. It never works. There is not one instance in my life that I could point to where that was the good decision. And here you have the Lord saying effectively, look, you might be a skeptic if you ignore my voice. And I know that the Lord doesn't want me or you or any of us to be skeptics in regard to that. And there's one other thing that this portion of Scripture brings out that I want to finish up with today, and that's this. You might be an unhealthy skeptic toward God, if God has to prove the accuracy of his word to you the hard way. If he has to prove it to you the hard way, you might be an unhealthy skeptic toward God. Look at what it says in verse 8 down to verse 13. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and Tapani. So now they're in Egypt, right? The Lord's already said, don't go to Egypt. Now they're in Egypt. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and Tapani. He says, Take in your hands large stones. And hide them in the mortar in the pavement that is at the entrance to Pharaoh's palace in Tapanes, in the sight of the men of Judah, and say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will send and take Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will set his throne above these stones that I have hidden. And he will spread his royal canopy over them. He shall come and strike the land of Egypt, giving over to the pestilence those who are doomed to the pestilence, to captivity, those who are doomed to captivity, and to the sword, those who are doomed to the sword. I shall kindle a fire in the temples of the gods of Egypt, and he shall burn them and carry them away captive, and he shall clean the land of Egypt as a shepherd cleans his cloak of vermin. And he shall go away from there in peace. He shall break the obelisks of Heliopolis, which is in the land of Egypt, and the temples of the gods of Egypt he shall burn with fire." That right there is an example of learning things the hard way. There is no lasting joy in living life as a continual skeptic toward the Lord. There's no lasting joy in that. And if that's the posture that we select, and we have the option to select that posture, I can select that, you can select that. In fact, most people on this earth do select that as their posture. 
right? But if that's the posture we select, we'll eventually experience the day when the Lord proves to us the accuracy of his word the hard way. So when Jeremiah and the others here, they, when they arrive in Egypt, the Lord takes him and he says, listen, I want you to do something visible. I want you to do something symbolic for the skeptics to observe. I want them to see this. So he was told to take some large stones. He was told to hide them in the mortar of the pavement at the entrance of Pharaoh's palace while the men of Judah were looking. And the Lord instructed Jeremiah to tell them that one day, in the not-too-distant future, that the, the day was going to come when Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the one that they were attempting to flee, that he would strike the land of Egypt just like he struck the land of Judah and that he was going to set his throne above these very stones. Meaning he's going to rule right, you know, I mean, his authority will be felt right here in this place. So in other words, these skeptics were about to learn that they should not ignore the word of the Lord, and they were about to learn it the hard way. Now again, as I've mentioned multiple times this morning, uh, I'm guilty of choosing the hard way over the easy way of trusting what God has said more often than I wish to count, and I realize that I'm not alone in that battle, but ignoring God's voice and rejecting the truth of his word, what it actually does, and I hope you'll hear me as I say this, what it actually does is it begins to feed our struggle with persistent sin that seems to linger in our lives. If there's an area in your life where you're saying, when will this persistent sin go away? When will this be something that I'm not doing battle with or struggling with or feeling guilty over? When will this be something that I'm not constantly wrestling with? If there's an area of your life, maybe an area of temptation, an area of rebellion, something against God, something that's like this ongoing struggle that never seems to go away, I want to share something that I read recently that I consider to be particularly insightful as we seek to grow mature in our walk with Jesus Christ, and as we learn to practice biblical repentance from our unbelief, biblical repentance from our skepticism toward the Lord. This was something that was written by a man named Matt Urban. I'm just going to give you a small snippet of it. But he made this comment. He said, we can be in the habit of going through the motions when it comes to repenting, but the most important thing is the condition of our heart. Does your repentance look like a heart that's been rent like a garment, broken and contrite as it beats before God? This attitude is missing from most repentance, and it's the very thing God is trying to teach us. Then he goes on, he says, we must also be aware of one of the biggest hindrances to obtaining a broken heart. And he says the biggest hindrance, or one of the biggest hindrances to us obtaining that broken heart that fosters repentance he said, it's our neglect of the relational aspect of sinning. By this, I mean that we can view sin as a failure of performance rather than a failure of intimacy. And that's the key line, isn't it? So often when, when we look at things in our lives that don't belong there, what do we do? We tend to think, uh-oh, I'm, I'm goofing up on God's checklist. It's like, no, it's not about, that's not the deepest issue. It's not about, you know, like messing up on the checklist. He knows that we mess up on the checklist. The issue is our relationship with him and the fact that our relationship with him is suffering. It's not so much that, that we don't keep a checklist perfectly. I've got a secret for you. You can't keep a checklist perfectly. You're welcome to try. You can't. Uh, that's why Jesus came to this earth, kept the checklist for us, so we trust in him. We repent before him. We plead for his mercy. He forgives our sin. We walk in new life. And we're grateful for the kind of love that he's shown us. And because we're grateful for the kind of love that he's shown us and the kindness that he's shown us, we're invited to repent when we notice something creeping into our, into our life that doesn't belong there anymore. And when our heart's broken over those things, we bring it before the Lord, we confess it, and we walk away in the direction that he wants us to go in cleansed of it, not holding on to it, not beating ourselves up about it continually, having repented of it, now walking with him, cleansed of the sin that we once embraced, walking in a right relationship with our Lord through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he wants for you and me, that we walk in that kind of relationship. It's, again, it's not about 
this big checklist that you and I can't keep perfectly. He knows we can't keep it perfectly. But what he wants for you and for me is an abiding relationship where he operates in our life as a loving father that we don't want as a distant father. Someone that we want him as, as a part of our day-to-day -day life. Recognizing that our life finds its source in him to begin with. That he's just not distant and someone we know about, but that we know him. And again, that's why Jesus Christ came to this earth, so that we could know him. Not just know about him, but know him. So when I invite rebellion into my life, when I ignore the word of God, when I, when I treat the truth of God like it's a lie, what I'm really doing is I'm, I'm interjecting something into my relationship with the Lord that hinders or hurts that relationship. And that should grieve my heart. And as my walk with the Lord has progressed, as he's been teaching me things over the course of my life, one of the things I've started to realize, and it's, I think, evidence of progress in that relationship, is that it does grieve my heart. Because I can tell you there was a time in my life where it did not grieve my heart to rebel against the Lord. I was fine with it. And you could probably think of a time in your life where that was the case true. Maybe today. But he doesn't want us to be fine with it. He wants us to recognize the nature of his kindness, the nature of his love, and to let that be something that motivates us to walk closely with him, not run from him. The group of people Jeremiah was dealing with in this context here, they didn't have a desire to walk with the Lord. Their desire, it seems, was continually to thumb their nose toward God and go their own direction. But the Lord's created us to experience the joy of a genuine relationship with him. Through faith in Jesus Christ, that is absolutely possible for every one of us. Again, by nature, I'm a skeptic. By nature, you're a skeptic. But what more could God do for us? And what more could God show us to convince us that there is no greater joy than walking with him? That walking away from him does not bring that greater joy into our lives, but walking with him allows us to experience it. Let me say this as we wrap up. And it's just two questions. Question number one is this. Right now, can you identify anything that might be getting in your way of experiencing a deeper walk with the Lord? So we're not talking your past. We're not talking about a distant time in your life. We're talking about right now. Right now, can you identify anything that might be getting in your way of experiencing a deeper walk with the Lord? That's question one. And question two is this, related to what we just read in this passage. Is it possible that our major struggle is our hesitance to listen for and respond to God's voice. Is our major struggle our hesitance to listen for and respond to God's voice? Meaning, are we in the same spot that the people we just read about were in? It's worth wrestling with because God wants better for us. And his kindness, his kindness leads us to repentance. His kindness makes us certain that it's always safer to run toward him than to run away from him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. And just for the privilege that it is to be able to look at passages like this from the book of Jeremiah that I think in a healthy but not always comfortable way, kind of scratch at different areas that are obviously not always easy to wrestle with and not easy to talk about. But at the same time, Lord, it's just so good to have to wrestle with these things. Lord, we know that you don't want us to treat your word like it's just an afterthought. You don't want us to treat your voice like it's something we need to get out of our mind or get out of our head. You want us to walk with you. You want us to treat our day-to-day -day life in such a way that we recognize that the great privilege that we have is a relationship with you through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, there are many people in this world that have all sorts of questions about you. They wonder about you. They think about you from a distance. And then we look at the privilege that you've given us to actually know you. And in fact, you tell us that the eternity that we have to look forward through the two as we trust in your son is an eternity of walking in fellowship with you 
experiencing your presence like Adam and Eve experienced before they rebelled against you. I mean, just the idea of taking a walk with you, Lord. That's the imagery you give to us related to our future. That's what was lost when Adam and Eve rebelled against you. They, they had a relationship with you that operated with such beauty and perfection, and they rejected it. And Lord, every day that I rebel against you, every day that any one of us rebel against you is a day where we're, it's not just about not meeting a checklist, Lord. We're, we're looking at the nature of the, the kind of intimacy, the kind of relationship where we know one another and, and love one another, Lord, that that's something we're rejecting. We're saying, I'd rather, rather something else than that. Lord, I know that naturally speaking, we pretty much always want something else other than that. But you open up our eyes to value what you offer through your Holy Spirit. You help us to see that even though our old nature probably wants something else, that what's better is what you offer. So Lord, as you speak to us through your word, we pray that we would listen to your voice. As you speak to us through people that you've placed in our lives, circumstances that you've placed uh, or that you allow us to go through, uh, as you speak to us through times of prayer, you speak to us in a moment of singing before you in worship. Lord, we pray that we would listen to your voice and that we wouldn't consider it a chore to do so. Lord, every day that I live, every day that every one of us lives is going to be a day where we're going to wrestle with this. Which voice am I going to listen to today? Am I going to squelch the voice of the Holy Spirit in my conscience right now or am I going to listen? And Lord, we see in this particular context that Unfortunately, for the group of people that Jeremiah was trying to do ministry with and for, in their context, they had to learn things the hard way. And Lord, obviously, every one of us gathered in this room have also learned things the hard way. But Lord, thank you for the privilege to learn. And thank you again for the privilege to know that we can turn around, that we can repent of the direction we were going in and come back to you because you're kind, you're loving, you're patient, you're merciful, and you welcome us into your presence. Lord, thank you for that reality, and thank you for the encouragement that you give us to walk in that direction as you empower us to do so. We commit ourselves to you today, and we thank you for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.